Welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast, hosted by Angel Deer. In this podcast, we explore the mysteries of spirituality and consciousness. In each episode, we dive deep into the realms of human experiences, our rapidly changing world, and the unseen realms, tapping into the universal wisdom that connects us all. Whether you're a seasoned spiritual seeker, starting to awaken to the possibilities of a more expansive reality, or want support on your journey, this podcast is for you. Join me as we explore topics such as shamanism, spiritual transformation, holistic healing, the medicine path, energy healing, plant medicine, ancient wisdom, and more. Our guests are respected elders and experts in their fields, and we'll learn from their insights and experiences as we journey together on the path of spiritual growth. If you can, please consider supporting this podcast by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Once again, it is patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Now, let's dive into today's episode. everyone, this is uh, Angel here. I'm really uh, blessed to be with you today. And I'm sharing this conversation I just had with John Seed, who is the founder of the Rainforest Information Center, and who has been involved in direct actions that have resulted in the protection of the Australian rainforest. But John is also someone that has developed with Joanna Macy the philosophy of deep ecology and experiential deep ecology workshops and the work that reconnect. If you've never heard about the work that reconnect, I really invite you to check it out and just Google work that reconnect Joanna Macy because you will probably discover practices that I feel are essential in today's world. There are ceremonies and rituals that dispel the illusion of separation between humans and the more than human world. And in order to really feel our connection, we need to do rituals and practices. We need to dismantle the barriers that we have built and learned in our minds, in our hearts, in our systems, in our society. We are definitely in troubled time. And that's what Joanna Macy called the great turning. This is a time of challenge for every species on the planet, not just human beings. And I know that you're probably like me and experiencing a lot of pain for the world. Pain when you witness atrocities and horror. Pain when you see death just displayed every day, everywhere on our TVs and social media, separations, hate, anger, this is extremely difficult to handle for our nervous system. And in this topic today with John, we're exploring how to honor our pain for the world. 
how to connect to it and how to transform it into action how to keep our spirit high and our willingness to get out of bed in the morning and to smile at the world and to feel really committed to this world and to be in it to be with it and to be in service of it so i really hope you enjoyed the talk i definitely had great pleasure to be with john and also i want to thank you for your donation we have a patreon page and without that and your support we will not be able to produce all those podcasts and so i really really appreciate for you to be here please take time to make a review on the podcast to make likes and comments on our youtube channel all of that help us to be seen to be heard and if you feel this voice is important those elders and wisdom keepers that we bring are worth reporting please give a, a little thumbs up a uh, good review and if you feel called to it uh, join our patreon page and support this work thank you okay let's dive into it now welcome everyone to this uh, time together to connect with someone I've heard about for many, many years, John Seed. Welcome, John. So excited to have you here. Thanks, Andrew. And we finally uh, kind of meet face to face thanks to technology, I guess. And uh, for those of you that are listening on the podcast, on the audio, you won't see that, but it's interesting because John has a background of four leaves behind him, which is kind of the season I'm in <laughs> here in the Northern Hemisphere. And behind me, I have this, what feels like a temperate rainforest, very mossy uh, background, which feels very much a little bit like what I experienced when I was in the Tarkine in Tasmania many years ago. So I could only smile when I saw the choice of our background today, John. So John, um, you know, we were talking a little bit before getting here on the live about the times we are in. And Joanna Macy called it the, the great turning. One of the elder I work with, Native American elder, Grandmother Sri Crow, she called it a time of prophecy. Great stories, great changes. We are, as we are recording, you know, in the midst of um, another war in the Middle East. There is a war going on in Ukraine. Um, there is conflict and displacement of people across the planet due to climate change and other issues. And, you know, I want to get to the, the heart of the talk. I like to start by the most pressing questions very often about the pain that we are probably all experiencing right now in our bodies our emotions in our hearts probably deeper in our souls this time where it seems to be that a lot of things are very challenging for living on the earth at the moment 
not just for human beings, but for animals, for plants, trees, forests, rivers, mountains. So, John, you've been doing work of preservation of the rainforest and other, you know, ecological restoration work that we'll talk more about later for a bit more than 40 years, right? Um, you're an elder in that work. <laughs> so how do you deal with the pain? And beyond that, did your connection to pain change over time from when you were in your 20s and 30s and maybe calling to that work and where you are at today? Yeah, well, thanks for that question, uh, Angel. It's um, perhaps the most important question there is in some way for me because how we, um, how we deal with the pain, how we address the pain of the world that we live in um, completely frames um, the course of our lives. And, uh, yes, it's changed tremendously for me. Um, and I can remember, indeed, the moment that this happened, which was um, a workshop that I attended in 1986 um, in a coastal town called Ballina in Australia. And um, an American woman had arrived here that I'd never met, but that I'd been hearing about called Joanna Macy. And she was doing a workshop called Despair and Empowerment. Mm. I'd been working in the um, movement to protect uh, the rainforests uh, for seven years at that time and uh, uh, in spite of tremendous successes uh, in Australia, which perhaps we can talk a little bit about later, um, it was becoming clear that for every forest that was being protected, a thousand forests were being lost all over the world and um, clearly there was no way to save the planet one forest at a time, that it just wasn't going to work. And so I was full of despair, and um, <clears throat> what I learned in that workshop from Joanna was that um, uh, rather than being afraid of those feelings of despair and terror and rage and anguish, which, you know, the world was kind of pushing me towards, um, if we can create a safe container, and she showed us how to do that, um, and gather together with a circle of people where we share the intention to honestly um, address those feelings that um, a, 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 an incredible empowerment rushes forth. And um, I, I was amazed to see the um, how profound this, uh, this thing was that she showed us. And I, I realised later that <laughs> these feelings of despair aren't um, socially constructed, that this, these are ancient feelings that go way back before our human existence that if we imagine our pre-human ancestors stretching back 4,000 million years, there was a tremendous intelligence there that preceded thought, that long before we grew this bulge over our nose that allows us to think our way through the world, we were challenged in every generation to make correct decisions. And all of those decisions were made on the basis of what we now call feelings. So you can call it intuitions or instinct or whatever you like, 
but what we call feelings is what remains of that ancient intelligence that led us through the most horrible, uh, challenging, terrifying circumstances. And every single one of those ancestors was intelligent enough to make good enough decisions to reach the age of reproducing itself before it was consumed, without exception. So these feelings were honed over the ages by natural selection in every generation to lead us and to point us in the direction of safety and away from the direction of danger. And so they're pushing up with a tremendous ancestral force and in order to suppress them, as we've been taught to do since we were children, an equal and opposite force is necessary. And this is where our life energy is squandered so that uh, there's the instinctual force of these feelings wanting to be heard, wanting to direct us and to lead us towards safety and to show us what's going on in the world. And there's the social pressure of saying this is unsafe, uh, um, people won't like me, whatever it is. And what remains is a sense of helplessness and hopelessness and what can one person do anyway and it's all too late and paralysis. You know? mm. And so that what I learned from Joanna was that if we can, um, if we can, can join with other people willingly to um, embrace these feelings, to welcome these feelings, to honour these feelings, um, a tremendous uh, energy is released in us and it's very positive and it's very uplifted. And so um, that's, um, you know, nearly 40 years ago and that's been the basis of my own kind of spiritual path ever since and so that's what I've also been facilitating for other people and um, as part of the uh, deep ecology workshops um, that um, I represent. Thank you for for sharing that and you know I hear the in what you're sharing, correct me if I'm wrong, but the necessity of the collective and the interconnectedness in order to process those feelings, right? That is not something we can really do alone. But in that context, I want to be kind of a little bit the devil's advocate here. Is there not also in our, what we call our intuition, misguided intuition, maybe because it is framed by capitalistic system and unprocessed trauma, a kind of God-like complex in our human behavior that somehow we believe or we feel that we are always going to be able to bring a solution that somehow we can fix any mess we're putting ourselves in. Given, you know, we have never been confronted something of that scale because we have never been that many people on the planet and we have never been on that planet. <laughs> the planet is changing, right? So would you say also, or would you see that maybe there's also a risk sometime, and I want then to weave that into activism, that our activism sometime also might bring more problems or be too quick to react, come from anger and create some harm and not allow us really truly to fundamentally enact change and healing? Um, yes, very true what you say. And of course, we don't know what the outcome of all of this is going to be. And so, um, it's anybody's guess still as to, um, what are 
the right moves for us to take as individuals, as as uh, a collective of people. But um, my experience in the um, despair circles uh, that um, I'm part of, you know, 10 or 12 times every year as the facilitator, but um, there's no, no facilitation required other than to create the safe container and to establish the agreements that make it safe for people to share their deepest feelings. And then I just sink back into the circle and I hear, you know, uh, over two or three hours, perhaps 20 or 30 people exp expressing their deepest anguish about what's happening to the world. And I, along with everybody else, um, my heart is broken by um, what I'm hearing, whether it's from myself or from uh, from the others. And in that collective breaking, um, there is a sense of something really beautiful and sweet that emerges that is undeniable. And so um, I'm not. It, it, that doesn't um, that doesn't negate the concern that you expressed, but. Um, this is what I have witnessed, you know, this is what I can share. And then I guess everybody has to um, figure that one out for themselves as to, you know, like um, when these feelings are appropriate. So the, the thing about this, um, the rage, especially where people just totally lose it in utter, extraordinarily noisy rage, I doubt that that's appropriate when at a political gathering, for example, you know that it's not that it's not that we're it's not that we're necessarily suggesting that these feelings should be unleashed upon the world in that way, but rather that just to be in a circle, in privately, to understand the depths of these feelings, and then to see what kind of wisdom emerges afterwards. Um, it's just a, a really, you know. Anyway, it's a really important part of my life. Yeah, and I feel rage very often, you know, in the shamanic tradition that I study, rage is connected to the fire and the anger. And it's very often the, the trigger point or the starting point, right? There's some deep somatic reaction. Um, for me, I remember I was probably seven or eight years old and I was a young kid growing up in France and I heard about you know it was the beginning of Greenpeace and those big movements on the environment and at the time was about the wells and we were seeing those videos of wells being harvested and massacred around the ocean and I got really really triggered and really angry about it that led me into becoming in my young teenage years uh, a Greenpeace activist and then it moved on to nuclear power and, you know, di different causes there. What was your rage trigger point when you were little or when you were young? What brought you into that work? If we can talk a little bit about going back in time, is there something that you're like, this is it? This is what I'm going to dedicate my life to? Yeah, well, for myself, it was very, um, how to say, it was just like, very huge kind of an experience where 
I'd been living in an intentional community in northern New South Wales. We were Buddhist meditators. We built a meditation center and uh, we were organizing meditation retreats, passionate retreats, mindfulness retreats. Uh, we were growing our own food, um, building our own houses, delivering our own babies. It was like the 70s, but that was in Australia, the 60s happened about 10 years later than in the United States. So we were, I was in the middle of that when um, uh, just at the monthly produce market in our local area, um, there was a band playing and uh, in between sets, one of my neighbours got on the stage and announced that the government forestry department was coming the next day to log the rainforest at the end of Terrania Creek Road and he asked for people to help to stop the destruction. And I had never been to the end of Terrania Creek Road, although it was just a few kilometres from where I'd been living. I didn't know there was a rainforest there. I didn't know there was a rainforest in Australia. I didn't know what a rainforest was. But I was into the neighbourhood and into helping the neighbours. And so for some reason I showed up on the Monday morning and there was, you know, um, bulldozers and police and so on. And something happened there that completely transformed my life. And I can't really describe it except that from one day to the next, not exactly, but more or less from one day to the next, I was no longer interested in the life that I'd been living. And all I wanted to do was to be together with these people and to uh, protect the rainforest. And it was like, I could say as a metaphor that I heard the trees calling out and they knew my name. You know, I, I don't know how to put it exactly. It, that's not true, you know, what I said. But it was something like that, you know, that uh, – and so with no doubt those years of meditation was what opened me up to the possibility of hearing something like that. But um, – it was utterly mysterious and um, it just, uh, my life changed from that moment. Mm, that was beautiful. And yeah, you're right. Probably your deep meditation skills, capacity to hear whispers inside your body and on the land probably opened that for you and prepare the terrain for it. Let's talk a little bit about the, the work that reconnect and this, you know, beautiful body of work. Uh, John, I'm missing and you have been, you know, uh, spreading across the world. Um, can you tell us a little bit what it is? And, you know, I've was sharing with you that I experienced my first, uh, work that reconnect workshop five years ago, I think now in the Tarkine in Tasmania in the, rainforest there which by the way it's probably one of the most beautiful forest i've ever walked through i was mesmerized i didn't know there was temperate rainforest in this in that part of the world so i was also mesmerized by the biodiversity um and part of the workshop for us was to go you know i think before we started we went to a clear-cut area that was just being cut i think a few days or weeks before and being in that bare land covered with those fallen trees. And I, I can't describe how I felt there because I was in shock. 
I was petrified. I was angry. I was crying. And then we dive into that work and I felt it kind of saved me because I think I would not have been able to process what I experienced and saw there. So can you tell us a little bit about that line of work and, and how it works and why it is so essential in this process of honoring our pain for the world and connecting back? Well, what's, um, what's called the work that reconnects um, in the United States, especially, and in Europe, in Australia, we've uh, continued to call exactly the same work um, experiential deep ecology. And it originated from that workshop that I mentioned to you where I attended Joanna Macy's workshop. And at that time, um, having experienced the despair of the thousand forests that were disappearing for every forest that we were able to save and just this sense of the slide to oblivion, um, I had realised that unless we could address the underlying psychological or spiritual disease that allows modern humans to imagine that we can profit from the destruction of our own life support systems, clearly these actions, even multiplied by 10, would not be enough to actually change the course of destruction that was taking place and to... Uh, save us from this mass extinction event that we had unleashed. And so um, I had found a philosophy of nature called deep ecology, and uh, this term was coined by the late Arnie Ness, who was the professor of philosophy at Oslo University. And according to him, underlying all of the symptoms of the environmental crisis lay the illusion of separation between human beings and the rest of the natural world. And this illusion of separation, he, he claimed, was the result of anthropocentrism or human-centeredness, the idea that the human being is the center of everything. So we are the crown of creation. We are the measure of all being. Only human beings have intrinsic value. Anything else can only have instrumental value if it's a resource for us because we are the center, we are the meaning, we are the top of the pyramid, and everything else is just here to support us. And Ness said that this anthropocentric error had been around for so long, at least as far back as the Old Testament, when we learn that humans are to subdue and dominate nature, and nature is to be in fear and trembling of us, that he said we wouldn't be able to think our way out of the mess that had been created. He said that ecological ideas aren't enough to save us. What we need is ecological identity, ecological self. And he said that in order to nourish our ecological identity, in order to become ecological rather than just to think ecological, he called for community therapies to heal the illusion of separation between ourselves and the rest of the living earth. And so I'd been thinking about this and lecturing about this and so on. Uh, but it was only when I met Joanna Macy that day in 1986 that I got the first inkling that she had the key to the kind of therapy that Arnie Ness was talking about. And when I spoke to her about this, she was just as 
blown away by the philosophy of deep ecology as I was blown away by her work with um, feelings and uh, the incredible personal changes that she was able to bring about. And so the next week we went walking together in Terrania Creek Rainforest and uh, at that time we um, developed the Council of All Beings, which was the first of the experiential deep ecology processes. And um, the following weekend, Joanna was um, uh, scheduled to do a, a facilitator's training in the work that reconnects in um, Sydney, and she invited me to come down and we held the first Council of All Beings workshop there um, at that time. And so that's what both of us have been doing ever since, bringing together the uh, philosophy of deep ecology with the uh, profound vehicle of transformation and therapy that um, she um, had been, you know, that she had discovered and she'd been working with. Um, so when we do a Work That Reconnects workshop now, um, it follows a spiral and we start with gratitude and uh, end with gratitude. And from gratitude, we move to immediately to honouring our pain for the world, which is the despair work that I learned from Joanna. Mm -hmm. And from there, we go to um, <clears throat> seeing with new eyes so that when people have deeply shared their own anguish and listened to and accepted the anguish and the testimony of the other people in the circle, then the scales fall away from our eyes and we can truly see things in a new way. And um, from there, we move to going forth, which is like how do we now take this into our lives? Um, you know, we might spend a weekend together, but tomorrow's going to be Monday and going back to my life and how is that going to work? And then we end as we started with gratitude. And uh, so I've got a workshop like that coming up in a few weeks in Tasmania and then a few weeks after that in Sydney and one in Melbourne. And um, I just, uh, I used to do this all over the world. Uh, you know, I'd be outside Australia for to six months of the year, but um, I can't really justify the, um, uh, you know, the, the jet fuel any longer. And um, anyway, Zoom, makes things like uh, this possible so um i'm i'm, I'm not um, you know I'm, I'm not moving around that like that anymore yeah i feel like i want to teleport you here so we can have a nice weekend here on the land talking about that Let, let's talk about the the council of all beings i had this experience when i was in tasmania and i went through the weekend together uh it was it's very hard to put into words what I experienced because I felt like something really shifted and changed through that experience. It felt very mystical, spiritual. I felt it was touching uh, parts of me that I didn't even know existed, but also allowed me to connect in a much deeper way to the natural world. Despite I felt quite connected, you know, I'm a land caretaker, I grow my food and I spend a lot of time every day on the land, but I think something open there and for me it felt very much like an ancient ceremony like i've experienced in peru or with native american in the way we open ourselves to the world so can you talk a little bit about that council of all beings and we will share you know here some reference and books that people can read and go deeper with this work but i'd love to 
yeah, you to explain a little bit what is this and and why? Why do we do that? What what is it that's coming out of that? Well, it's um, it's a way of uh, removing the human from being the center of the story, from being the star of the show, from being the meaning of the whole thing. And so, what we do is um, we do various exercises to just open ourselves up a little bit to each other and to the work. But having done that. We um, and and we honour our pain for the world, so that everyone has exposed themselves to each other in a way that we don't usually do. So it's, it's already people are in a, um, a a different kind of a consciousness, and then um, each of us connects with an ally from the non-human world. This could be a plant or an animal or a feature of the landscape. It could be a drop of water or the Pacific Ocean, but um, and there's a whole process, a vision quest, really, um, that's involved in connecting with this ally. But um, after we've connected with the ally, we make a mask to represent that ally. And in some workshops, we can spend a lot of time with this, but or it can just be a paper plate with two eye holes and a mouth hole cut into it and some lines drawn on it. But it, when we gather... In the Council of All Beings, we walk through a, a portal, uh, in, you know, in, in a ceremonial fashion. We enter the Council of All Beings. We're not, we don't see a sea of human faces. There are masks. And then um, we invite this non-human voice to speak through us. So it's not necessary to be, you know, to act, to believe that this really is the voice of the Pacific Ocean or anything. All that you have to do is move into a little bit of a childlike space and the instruction is that it's difficult not to prepare things to say, but whatever you've prepared, say it as quickly as you can because this begins when you don't know what's going to happen next. And always a conversation develops that none of us have ever heard before, including me, who's done this hundreds of times over 40 years, always a conversation develops and we hear things that move us uh, and that uh, stun us. Whether it's people can have different opinions about where these voices are coming from and it doesn't matter. All that matters is that it opens us up to things that normally, we hear things that we don't normally hear. And, you know, what you say about, um, you know, you, when you did this, being reminded of uh, you know work that you'd done in Peru and so on, reminds me that only a year after Joanna and I had first created this, uh, and I, you know, both she had been continuing to offer these in the United States, and I'd been doing them in Australia, and then I found myself in the United States and somehow privileged to be a witness of a ceremony of some Hopi indigenous people on a mesa in the southwest and there were hundreds of people, the whole community was involved in this ceremony and there was just a handful of us outsiders sitting in a corner watching the, the, them in the square and to my astonishment, I saw that they were doing the Council of All Beings, which I thought that Joanna and I had invented <laughs> the year before and but they assured me that they'd been doing for 10,000 years without pause and 
afterwards, I did some research and found that I couldn't find a single example of an Indigenous community that had maintained its ceremonial life that didn't have ceremonies and rituals practiced regularly year after year, many times through the year, where the human community was invited to honour all our relations and to respect to to worship and to teach the children and to show that um, we uh, respect and honor the more than human world and then I realized that it was only we modern people to whom this was you know like uh, we'd somehow pushed this off to the side but all of us of course had indigenous ancestors as well who surely practiced these uh, things and so um, it's surprising how easily it comes back to us that you would mm. think that something as weird as the Council of All Beings, but the weirdness disappears very, very quickly and we just feel at home. We just feel like, oh, yeah, of course, I remember this. Yeah, I could feel into those uh, Hopi people with their deer mask and deer dancing uh, uh, and the beauty that is there and yeah you're right in, in the indigenous community i've very often witnessed those practices that are often called shape-shifting or with different names where we invite um the animal or the spirits through our bodies in order to draw upon their wisdom their way to see the world their way to to relate to the world in my first council of all being i was a mushroom and i was speaking the voice of the mushroom kingdom. You've done hundreds of them, John, right? Probably, I don't know, we probably can count by now. Is there a particular ally or do you remember the allies? Um, does it change all the time or do you feel that there are certain allies that are really speaking through you and that you feel more connected to by doing this work? Um, no, it, it changes. Like I, I try to, um, I try to avoid allies that I've seen before unless they insist, you know, because uh, it, it makes it more interesting for me and it's important for the facilitator to be as interested as possible, you know, so so I try to see. And, um, you know, recently uh, the coronavirus spoke through me and, you know, like so that there's, there's new things happening all of the time. But um, I find that when I'm the because I'm the facilitator and because the things that I say may seem to people to have more importance than what other people are saying, often I hardly speak at all during the council, but I introduce the council and, you know, like I'll, I'll be the first voice I will say, well, I'm the correct, you know, what we do now is um, if you read the book Thinking Like a Mountain and I'll send you the um, PDF link so that people can you know it's available online now and people can read it um you'll see that the council of all beings as joanna and i designed it in 1986 has a certain structure where first we do this and then we do that you know but now um the only structure is that we go when once we've passed through the ritual gate that takes us away from the deep ecology workshop and into the council of all beings itself and we put our masks on as we come through that gate, then um, the only structure is that I, as the facilitator, will introduce myself and uh, 
hi, I'm the coronavirus and, uh, you know, I'm here to wreak havoc among the humans or whatever, you know. And then we just quickly go around the circle where everyone introduces themselves and after that um, there's no there's no structure. It's just like mm. when at, at a certain point you'll be hearing a conversation and suddenly you'll realise that you have something to say, you know, and so something something happens which has never happened before. And in that, unless, again, my ally is very insistent, I prefer to remain silent because I feel like it's much more authentic if people don't feel that the facilitator is directing the conversation in a certain direction, you know, that uh, mm -hmm. I no, don't I'm want to have any privileged voice in the council. No, I'm very curious about which ally is very insistent and what do they have to say. <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 it depends entirely upon the context, but, um, you know, so the spider might sometimes um, realise that the web that it, you know, it was a tiny little spider between two branches in a tree, but that the web that was the context of its life, it, it echoes the larger web of life and so may feel the need to weave in the council connections that perhaps others are missing. You know, I, I don't know. It, it, it's kind of difficult to difficult to look it's difficult to even remember it's like a you know it's like a psychedelic or something like that you know something amazing happened and you might be able to remember the words but you can't remember the experience do you, do you know like it's just it's either yeah, it's present or it's not yeah it's very much like a dream state and we're awake and you know something is is moving through um johnny we talk a little bit about indigenous people and how some of those practices, you know, are very ancient and somehow we are bring them back into the Western world where they have never been experienced or they've been forgotten. But I want to talk about the context of this work, uh, of honoring our pain, especially of reconnected, reconnecting to the greater web of life in the context of indigenous lives and especially in Australia. Uh, at the moment, you know, we were talking right before uh, coming online about this referendum that just happened in Australia that was about giving some more voice and presence to Indigenous people and that referendum failed. I want to talk to you and ask you a little bit about that connection to Indigenous voices connected to your work and the work of preservation of rainforest and how essential it is, how do you bring that forth or do you bring that forth and how do you connect that in the fact that if we honor the land and all the voices, we have obviously to honor the land caretakers, the original caretaker of those lands and how that work in the context of Australia in 2023 and the world, I guess, in 2023, where very often indigenous voices are still oppressed, unheard, and yeah, just not present around the table of those essential conversation on land preservation, ecological restoration, forest, etc. 
Well, um, my life has had two sort of wings, perhaps, um, and one of them is the conservation of nature, um, rainforests in particular. But you know, and I've I've worked in how shall we say traditional ways that the conservation movement works: direct action, campaigning, media, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and organisations, and the other one is the more um, psychological or spiritual side of things, which is these workshops. And I've, you know, my life is, seems to be the weaving together of these two things. So, in terms of the um, workshops and of the work that reconnects, um, the workshop coming up in Tasmania um, in a few weeks' time is the first time that one of the uh, co-facilitators. I'm 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 training a lot of people at the moment, and uh, I have several co-facilitators in every workshop. One of the co-facilitators is an Indigenous Australian woman. Antonia Burke is from the Tiwi Islands, the far north of Australia, uh, north of Darwin, and she's an activist, and she's bringing deep ecology into her um, environmental activism. I'm so uh, excited that uh, that this is happening, but. Otherwise, um, there hasn't been, there's been very little interest or presence of Indigenous people in these things. And indeed, in the early days, we would uh, borrow um, certain ceremonies or processes, you know, like we would do, say, the Cherokee Indian dance as part of the workshop, and then discovered that uh, Indigenous people weren't that happy at, uh, you know, it was just like, They've stolen everything else and now they're stealing our ceremonies. And so I stopped doing that. And now all of the things that we do in the workshops are things that we've created ourselves or developed ourselves, even though they uh, resonate, they echo with what um, people have done throughout time. <laughs> so it's more in the conservation work that there's been a lot of, a lot more connection with. Indigenous people, and that um, often we find ourselves um, working on a conservation issue only to discover that there that we have allies that we didn't um, we weren't expecting, you know. And so, for example, I'm remembering um, long, long ago we were trying to save some forests on the frontal dunes of the ocean at a place called Middlehead on the east coast of Australia where a sand mining operation was uh, destroying the dunes to um, <clears throat> extract uh, strategic minerals from underneath. And we were camped there and blockading and getting arrested. And one morning we woke up and there was a, a new tent there with the Aboriginal flag on the top. And there were these Aboriginal people there and they didn't even speak to us. They just um, participated in the action. and. But eventually we got to know each other and we sort of said, you know, well, what are you doing here? And they said, well, the old people told us to come and protect the cave. And we said, the cave? You know, we had no idea that there was a cave. But, it, it, you know, it just it, it sort of symbolised something that actually happened quite a lot, you know, where it wasn't through any deliberate intention but just often uh, we found an intersection and an overlap between the interests of the conservation movement and the interests of 
uh, Indigenous people, not only in Australia but also in India and in Ecuador and um, in Malaysia and other places where we've worked. Mm-hmm. I, you know, as I think of that and, you know, hear you there, I, I wonder, you know, you talk about obviously the early kind of birth of the deep ecology work and the definition of it what was really in it, which was really more, I guess, psychological, philosophical work on how do we transform the human psyche that created the problem in the first place, right? Which is not just about action, direct action and things like that, but how do we really tap deeply into the wound that allows us to destroy the environment or destroy what sustain our lives? without feeling the consequence of it, without feeling a direct connection to it. And then there is a direct action. How do you see the the balance of that? You know, very often I question myself on, do I balance that properly? Should I not spend more time in direct action or maybe fundraising money or being on, you know, protest and like we did when we were in Tasmania, instead of doing the work that I know is very essential, which is the work of seeing where the root cause are in a capitalistic system, in, in my own system, in my own belief. So how do, we, how do we balance that? And given the urgency that we are in today, where do you feel should we spend the most time or where is the time needed, right? For people that experience despair and rage and want to be more involved, but do you feel like, one is as important as the other or how do we balance that in our in our lives i think that um you know uh, that's a kind of a a deep question which um whatever answer i might give is contingent and we shouldn't lose the importance of the question you do you know that the question's more important than any answer that might come up this particular morning but it seems to me that the whole purpose of um, the experiential deep ecology is to move us out of the sense of humans being the centre of everything and where we realise that we're not the tip of the pyramid but rather we are one strand in the web of life and we're connected to all of the other strands. Or perhaps that we're one cell in the body of the earth. And <clears throat> so if we experience ourselves in that way if we genuinely and authentically allow ourselves to feel this tiny, tiny piece of this vast, ancient living organism, then we can um, see that it's like the different parts of a body don't all have the same function, you know, that um, Mm -hmm. we, we start off as a single cell that's fertilized and then we split into two, four, eight, sixteen, and eventually into billions. And one part migrates off to become part of the liver, and another part migrates off to become part of the brain. And each is as important as the other. And so the particular answer is going to be different for each person according to their passions, according to their skills, according to where they happen to find themselves in this vast body of the earth and where they happen to find themselves geographically located and, and all of that. So it's not like there's any 
general answer to the question, but rather that if we can ask the question in a way where we surrender and we invite, we, we, we say, um, Mother Earth, if we want to look at it that way, I, um, I'm available. Show me, show me where to go. Show me what to do. That, that we, we really, um, invite, um, the, uh, the answer to come to us. We invite ourselves. Am, am I to be part of the liver or am I to be part of the brain or am I to be part of the hand that's crafting what, whatever it is? And so I often, when I'm confused and I feel that question, I might do something like, well, what's something spontaneous, but perhaps it's it's dry and I'm near the forest and I'll go and lie in the forest and cover myself in leaves and surrender and say, what should I do? And then whatever I feel like doing after that, whatever I'm enthusiastic about, I assume that that's the answer. And somehow, you know, my life is woven out of moments like that, you know, that uh, I, I trust, like, when I'm enthusiastic about something, it's much, much more likely to succeed than if I'm doing it out of a sense of duty or guilt, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and so to, to, to learn to trust my enthusiasm and to see that, to look back at where my enthusiasm has led me and to see that it, it, it makes some sense, you know, it's like, it's, it's not a bad life that my enthusiasm has, has kind of guided me through. Anyway, that's, um, that's how I try and answer it for myself. But I'll also add that Joanna Macy speaks a bit about this time, have you, as you've mentioned, as the great turning. And she picks out three aspects of the great turning, which she says are of equal importance. And so on the one side, there is the holding actions, the defending, uh, to, to stop the loss of uh, nature of language of in- indigenous culture and these things. Then there is creating the new world, even while the old world is still triumphant. Do you know, while so we're here and the tail of the dinosaur is still thrashing and we have to stay out of the way, and we have permaculture and uh, transition towns and um, all of the things that we build. Of, of the, the way the world, we build the world that we want, you know? And finally, there's the work on consciousness directly, which might, might be the deep ecology and the work that reconnects and meditation and yoga and these things. And so often as an activist, I would find myself, you know, in, in a community of people where they were just like, if only everybody was doing what we're doing, everything would be all right. You know, and but um, it's it's actually much better to have this sense of the of the great turning where we can say, well, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but that person over there who's just uh, you know teaching permaculture, they're doing something that's just as important and just as necessary. And in this vast body, there are many roles that need to be filled, and I just trust that. There are many things that people are doing that are different from what I'm doing, but that's actually working towards um, the whole that we're trying to create. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you.
I really appreciated the moments where you went back to the forest and covered yourself in leaves uh, to find Clyde. I think it's a, it's a beautiful wisdom and practice. I think we are in a world that is so fast that stopping, slowing down, laying down on the earth, being instead of doing can give us wisdom that we can't access any other ways, really. And uh, that is really important. Is there moments, I was asking you off a recording before we started, where you lost hope or you felt moments where you just wanted to give up because it was too emotionally intense? I think in the process of honoring our pain, many people that I talk to sometimes feel like this is just too much. I don't know if I can keep doing that. Like the despair can be real, right? The hopelessness can be very real. So I would love to yeah, hear about, because you've been doing that for a long time, uh, often did you face that? Was it really dragged down? Did it really stop you on your tracks? Maybe for a few years, I don't know, or longer, and then you came back to it. What, what has been your process with despair and pain, not just in the high and the moments where you feel really engaged and happy, excited to get out of bed, but the moments where you are not or you were not? Well, um, you know, for me, it's it's never been because I was overwhelmed with feelings, that somehow never stopped me because ever since I met Joanna, I had processes to mm. um, metabolize the feelings, to, to do something with them. But I did have the experience where at one point, at the end of every workshop, uh, the last process would be something that we called the letter from Gaia where each person would have a sheet of paper and a pen, including me, and the instruction was to write at the top of the paper, dear, a letter, dear, and then your name. So I would write, dear John, and you would write, dear Angel, and then uh, this is your mother, Gaia, and then just keep writing and see what comes out, you know, and if you if you can't think of anything to say, then just write the last word again and again until the next thing comes. And then at the end of that, uh, maybe one or two people would share if something profound had happened. And always there'd be one or two people who would receive like amazing instructions for their life and so on. But because at that time I would be traveling, say, through the United States doing a workshop every weekend, um, the instructions that I received were just for the next week. You know, that I didn't need instructions for my life. I already had those. So I would just, you know, what, what I should do, you know, what I should give priority to over the next week. And I would just follow those instructions, whatever they were. And then suddenly, one day, the instruction said, Dear John, this is your mother, Gaia. Please stop everything that you're doing um, and wait for further instructions. And I was like, no, this is impossible, you know, uh, how, no, it must be a mistake. But the following week, the same thing happened. And the week after that, the same thing happened. And, but the instruction became, but don't break anything. Don't, don't just drop things, pass them on to other people, just put things down in a gentle way. And that took me 
about a year to actually continually receiving those instructions and to slowly move away from everything that I'd been doing. And then another year, um, there, nothing. There was no, uh, no enthusiasm. There was nothing there. And so I just stopped. It's just like I, uh, I, I felt like she's got my number. If there's anything for me to do, she'll call. And so there's nothing for me to do. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. And, uh, and so I just obeyed those instructions and I did nothing. I, I was in a relationship and, um, my wife was doing the, her PhD in ecological identity. And so I, um, you know, uh, cooked the food and cleaned the toilet, you know, and I just went to the library and read and so on because I didn't, uh, I, I couldn't do anything without those instructions. And then just as mysteriously as it had started, we were in a forest in Chile and all of a sudden it all came rushing back. And there was no explanation, you know, why was that necessary, you know, but uh, it just felt maybe it was just important for me to realise that I'd, I wasn't I wasn't the center of all of this. It didn't, you know, this wasn't about me being busy all the time, you know. It was just more about just truly surrendering to necessity. I, I don't know how to how to say it. So, uh, yes, that was that was a time when uh, when I moved away from the, this work and then but I was I was so grateful when it came back. <laughs> Looking, how many years ago was that? And looking back, do you see a, do you have a different kind of look on it or like something came out of that? Well, that was 25 years ago. And, um, no, I, I no, it's, it's, it's just remained this, this mystery that, uh, I don't really, you know, it, the, the thing that came back to me afterwards, it was also like, uh, about maybe five or six years ago, I had a, tumor behind my right eye which brought me close to death and I spent a couple of years doing nothing more than staying alive and in the same way when that was resolved and uh, you know happily or hopefully um, it, 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 that's uh, behind me um, it, there was just this tremendous sense of gratitude and relief to find that my enthusiasm for um, nature my love of nature And my love of this work of um, of um, introducing people to the kind of ceremonies that uh, allow us to deeply sink our roots into the living earth, and allow me to mm. to do that. You know, um, uh, just this tremendous sense of gratitude that uh, it came back again, one more time, one more dance. And that's kind of how I feel about, you know, like whatever happens next. I don't feel optimistic. I don't feel pessimistic. I just have no idea where this is going to go. But, you know, the slide to oblivion is just like really intense. The destruction of nature is really intense. There's many very positive things going on, but as to whether, you know, we're going to solve the problems, you know, or whether we may be the last generation of humans after You know, 4,000 million years of success, of continuous evolution, maybe coming to a close for all I know. And so in the same way that you were asking the question about how to balance 
the um, you know the different you know the activism versus the spiritual and so on. I'm asking the question: how to balance the desire to do everything that I can to um, uh, slow the slide, to prevent the slide, to wake people up, to save. At the moment, I'm working on koalas, which are threatened with extinction in New South Wales and, and so on. But on the other hand, well, you know, that given this extraordinary moment when things may be coming to a close, a certain part of my life has to be devoted to just giving praise and giving thanks and being grateful, you know, in, in community with other people about what an amazing trip it's been and to and to just give a vast cheer and applause to the universe for the, you know, for the privilege of having been allowed to be part of this, you know, that I, I, it may be time to say goodbye, you know, and uh, that somehow how to balance those things with each other because maybe not, maybe, maybe uh, if we, uh, if we feel a desperate enough desire for this to continue maybe we'll come up with the next step mm. thank you for for sharing that i'm really feeling it deeply i think when we witness collapse or when we are don't know land caretaker and i'm pretty sure that's your experience with the rainforest you know you develop such a level of intimacy it's a relationship. It's something really precious. And I guess it's like seeing someone maybe dying, right? You, you know the preciousness of every moment. You know that time counts and every encounter is, is meaningful and, and we have to be really present in it. And we need to find joy in those moments. But also in this process of honoring our pain, in this process of touching upon the grief, I wonder, as you look at the rainforest today in Australia, where you know a lot of your work has been, what's the level of joy and what's the level of grief? And can we, don't know if we can compare them. I mean, it's like two very different things, right? But how does this play today, you know, looking back or looking at what's, like you say, we don't know what's coming, right? But looking what's in front of our eyes today. I'm not going to ask you if you feel hope or not, because that would mean, you know, knowing the future. <laughs> but what, what do you feel when you balance all those feelings? What is the experience today in that relation? Well, I think that um, what I'm experiencing is that the more that I'm willing to experience the grief and the anguish in that ritual context of the despair work of the Council of All Beings, of the uh, Experiential Deep Ecology Workshops, the more space is carved out in me that can then be filled with utter bliss and joy, the joy of being alive, the joy of experiencing nature, you know, that, that it's not as though one... Um, overwhelms the other but that the two are like the poles of a magnet or something like that and um the process is one of learning how to tolerate more energy you know that um mm. many earlier in my life i think um you know if, if we if we think of the of the 
one class of feelings as being like the, the top of a wave and the other class of feelings like the bottom of a wave, that the waves were kind of a little bit shallow and that the more that I do this work, like the more that I love the nature of the world, the more intense is the grief to see what's happening to it and the more that I'm prepared to actually experience that grief and both in myself and in other people, the more that the wave can then, you know, rise up beyond anything that's ever done before. And so, um, you know, there's a there's an interesting um, one of the ancestors of the deep ecology movement is um, the American poet Robinson Jeffers. Uh, um, although he died before the term deep ecology was coined, clearly he his philosophy was very aligned. And there's one of his poems when he uh, <clears throat> he asks uh, something like, "When we when will we learn?" To allow the diamond within to reach out and touch the diamond without stretching our humanity thin between the invulnerable diamonds. You know? And so I take that as being something about the, the spiritual, our own spiritual nature, um, meditation, you know, the depths of, of our own experience of consciousness. You know, and then there's the diamond without is the natural world and the, and the utter glory of the cosmos that we find ourselves in. And there's a tendency to kind of feel like one is reducing things to one or the other. Some spiritual people think that all of the, you know, all of that is just an illusion, that the only reality is consciousness, the only reality is enlightenment. And there are activists who think that that's just a kind of a, a kind of a cowardice and that the, that the, the only reality is the natural world and that we have to forget all that bullshit and just uh, struggle for the natural world. And, but somehow I feel like what we need is to hold both of those things the way that Robert C. Jeffers was suggesting and allow our egos to become tiny, you know, in the, you know, as, as, as the charge of both consciousness and, um, connection to nature grow larger than our own little parochial kind of lives fall into a, you know, a less and less significance in, in the light of all of that. Mm. Thank you, John. This is so beautiful. I'm really taking that in. If we, uh, could send John of today back in time, to talk to little John, young John, <laughs> what advice would you give him? And, and as an extension of that, what advice or, you know, based from where you think things from today, would you give to younger people that are, you know, touched by these grief, that are touched by the state of the world and wants to be part of the solution? What would be word of advice, guidance that you would give them? Mm. Um, what's coming to me is, um, there was a, a song about the universe that was, um, 
very beautiful but ended in a satirical kind of a way that was part of uh, um, the Monty Python movie called The Meaning of Life. And um, I, it's basically a, a description of the solar system and the galaxy and the universe and the sense that this is who we are, you know, that, that we're the, a human moment in this vast, vast orchestra that's taking place. And the, um, I changed the, the two lines at the end to, um, sink your roots deep into the galaxy, um, flame of life, planet Earth, sink your roots deep into reality, dance your life for planet Earth. And so it's, it's, so the advice would be, Cultivate the ability to surrender to being just one tiny cell in this vast organism, this vast planet, this vast solar system, galaxy, universe, and um, and allow um, guidance to come through, you know, and allow a certain kind of um, uh, disinterested ability to know that. Um, Whatever happens here, we grew out of this vastness without, without intention. We just suddenly find ourselves here. We will be gone without a question as, as individuals, as a planet, everything, nothing lives long, you know? And so, but in that surrender to discover what our, um, what our calling is, what our role is, and to uh, and to um, certainly the, the 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 work that reconnects um, is is a way of uh, finding skills to be able to navigate um, such a perilous and difficult time as we find ourselves in. Thank you. I like this dance. I love this dance. So we will be sharing for people listening to the recording here uh, on YouTube, on our podcast, uh, the book companion PDF to this kind of work. We're sharing links also to John's work uh, in, for the rainforest in Australia and broader work that he's doing. Um, we're getting to the end of our time together, John. So I wonder if there is Anything else you would like to share before we, we close our time today? Is there any message or anything that you want to bring here? Well, um, perhaps I'd like to just end on a practical kind of a note, which is, um, as I say, like my life is balanced between practical conservation and uh, deep ecology. And most of our conversations have been about deep ecology. So I'd like to tell you about a project that I've been working on yes. for many years, which is um, uh, called the Los Cedros Biological Reserve. And uh, it's an amazing uh, place in Ecuador that we first became involved in in the late 1980s. And um, we got a grant from the Australian government back then that allowed us to create this biological reserve. and We've been protecting it and defending it against all manner of threats ever since. That while the rainforests 
in the vicinity were being degraded year after year, we were able to stop the logging and the poaching and the land development and all of the other things that were going on. And then a few years ago, a corrupt decision by the Ecuadorian government uh, allowed mining in um, previously protected forests called Boscus Protectoris. And so a Canadian mining company, Cornerstone Resources, started mining for copper and gold in Los Cedros. We um, um, sued them and went through a lengthy court process of appeal and counter-appeal, but eventually a couple of years ago ended up in the Supreme Court of Ecuador, which is the Constitutional Court, and the Ecuadorian Constitution was the first one in the world to include the rights of nature, and so we based our legal case on the rights of nature being abrogated by the mining at Los Cedros, and to everyone's amazement, including ours, the Constitutional Court sided with us. And so this was the first time that um, this um, uh, clause in the Ecuadorian Constitution was given teeth because now there was a precedent that uh, a mining company could be ejected based on the rights of nature. And as a result of that, we've now been supporting several other communities in Ecuador to protect their forests based upon the rights of nature. And the first of these have succeeded in the lower court. Now that the precedent's been set, it doesn't have to go to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And now the company will probably appeal. And, you know, it's, it's a long and ridiculous process. But uh, I'm very excited that uh, the rights of nature are, um, are becoming a practical thing. Like the rights of nature is the kind of thing that you that comes from deep ecology or the council of all beings. Human mm. beings aren't the centre of nature, you know, but now the rights of nature is part of a, a legal precedent that's taking place. And so um, I, I feel like I just want to end on that note that um, this isn't just about, um, um, you know, lofty kind of ideas. This is just very, very practical and that the empowerment that we receive from um, doing the despair work is empowerment to act intelligently and effectively in the world. Thank you, John. Thank you for, for leading the fight, for being, you know, one of those amazing voices that we need today. Uh, thank you to everyone that were listening today in the, on the live and the people that are going to listen to the recording. Uh, we'll share links um, to John's work and if you feel called to send donations to send support uh, please do um, John thank you so much thank you for your time today uh, I look forward to meet in person so I hope this will happen I don't know where and when but you know I, I, I want that to happen so I'm just putting that out there uh, and thanks again for for your presence your wisdom today and yeah, everything that you shared with us Mm, likewise, Angel. I look forward to meeting you too. Um, you know, have a beautiful uh, podcast and uh, a real great, uh, great way for me to start my day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast. We deeply value your support. 
please consider sharing this podcast with others and joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. Once again, it is patreon.com slash the sanctuary and why. At the sanctuary, we believe that spirituality is a personal journey that takes many forms, and we honor and respect all paths to awakening and the rise of consciousness. Our mission is to provide a platform for open and honest conversations about spirituality and to inspire and empower our listeners to live their most authentic lives in good relation to each other's, the living and invisible worlds. I look forward to connecting with you again here or at our events, retreats, and online gatherings. You can find all our offerings at thesanctuaryheal.com. Once again, it is thesanctuaryheal.com.